I want to ask you to take your copy of God's Word and please open it to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8. We're continuing our theme of thinking about worship. The month of January has been set aside to focus on worship, to think about what we do when we worship, what constitutes worship. And I would remind you that this is no peripheral issue. As worship goes, so goes life. Worship that is directed upon the Lord God through Jesus Christ will direct a life that focuses on our Lord God and Jesus Christ. But when worship is askew, life will be messed up. And just to emphasize that point, the angels rang their bells. Now today I want to address an issue that sometimes arises in thinking about worship. See, over the last years, there's been a fragmentation about what happens when you come together to worship. What I mean is this. We recognize that when the church gathers, there's praise and worship. And then some people will say, then there is preaching. And there's been this distinction made. Well, we'll have a time of praise and worship, and then there will be preaching. As if the two are separate. As if you could have praise and worship without preaching. Or as if you could have preaching without praise and worship. And what we're going to see is the two go together. Now, I think this situation has arisen for many reasons. One, we live in an age that is anti-authoritarian. We simply don't like being told what to do. And there is an element in preaching that carries with it an authority that says, this is what God's Word says. I mean, think about how we usually think about preaching. How many times has a, a husband or a wife looked at the other and said, now don't start preaching to me. And they don't mean that in a positive way. Because often in our time, the idea of preaching carries with it this, this, this pedantic, this authoritarian, this, you ought to know better than that. And so we like to distinguish preaching from praise and worship because of that. For others, we separate the two because we see praise and worship as something active. It's something that we do, we sing, we engage. And then preaching becomes something passive. Preaching is what he does up there in the pulpit. And we've moved away from the idea that preaching is an active engagement with three parties involved. You see, preaching is active because, one, it involves the preacher. Preaching is active because, one, it involves the congregation engaging in the preaching event. And the third party is God himself. That preaching and God's people come together with the Spirit of God quickening hearts and minds and illuminating the truth. You see, we cannot allow worship and preaching to become separated because they both go together. Historically, that has been true. Martin Luther once said, wherever there is the church, there will be the Word of God proclaimed. And wherever the Word of God is proclaimed, there will be the church. You can't have one without the other. 
In fact, as Protestants, that's why church design takes the, the form that it does. That's why we place the pulpit here in the center to show that the proclamation of the Word of God is central to who we are as God's people. We can't get away from it biblically. The New Testament shows a pattern that wherever God's people gathered, there was singing, and there was the opening of God's Word to be taught and explained. You see this in 2 Timothy where Paul uh, admonishes Timothy. Give yourself to the preaching of the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. In 1 Timothy, he tells Timothy, give yourself to the public reading of Scripture. You see this in the book of Acts. Whenever the church gathered, there would be a time of praise and worship. Acts 15 serves as an example. When Paul met with the brethren, he began preaching. And Paul must have been extra filled with the Spirit that night because he kept preaching well into midnight. And a young man by the name of Eutychus who was seated next to a window, his eyes began to grow heavy and his head began to began to nod. Now, don't act like y'all don't know what I'm talking about. And he fell out of the window and died. Now, I always like to point out that the one recorded instance in the Scripture of somebody falling asleep in a sermon led to his death. <laughs> People will say, well, well, Pastor Paul, Paul brought him back to life. God brought him back to life through Paul. Well, I I'm, I'm, don't claim to be Paul. But what the early church was doing was following the pattern established even in the Old Testament. Where preaching is a part, a central part of worship. I draw your attention to Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Now Nehemiah is known as the book where the people rebuilt the wall. That was the primary focus. But the primary point of the book is God who is faithful. You see, Jerusalem had been in ruins, decimated by the Babylonians. And over time, God, who is always faithful to His Word, begins allowing the people to return to the land. And as they return, they begin to correct the, the problem in Jerusalem. And one of the main problems, there was no wall giving them an identity and a protection. And because the wall had fallen, God would be mocked. People would look and say, your God can't even protect His own people. So they engage in rebuilding the wall. But the whole point is God's faithfulness. God allows them to do that for the glory of His name. Now when you come to the end of chapter 7, the wall has been finished. Chapter 7 ends with the statement, When the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. In other words, the wall around Jerusalem was built. Jerusalem was central. But the people had gone back home with the wall being there if they ever needed to retreat within the walls of Jerusalem for safety. It was available. But then something happens. Now we begin in verse 1 of chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the law, the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive 
to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood Mathathiah, Shemaiah, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malachijah, Hashum, Hashabadana, Zechariah, and Meshelam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua, Benaiah, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelatai, Azariah, Josabad, Haniah, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because... They had understood the words that were declared to them. Pray with me now. Father, thank you for your gracious love. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. And ultimately, Father, thank you for Jesus, your Son. Fully God and fully man. Who brings us to the full recognition of your glory. Father, work within us this morning. Make our ears attentive to your word. For, Father, your word is life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. From this passage, I want us to think about three things as it relates to worship and the word. And remember, my premise is is that preaching, preaching is not secondary to worship. In In fact, I will make the argument this morning that true worship flows out of the proclamation of the word. But the first thing I want to draw attention to is this. Notice that worship that is focused on the word and driven by the word is sought by a unified people. Now notice when the people came together, they are described in in verse 1 as coming together as one man. Now remember, they had spread out at this point, but now they come together. And that word, as one man, describes a unity among the people where they were coming together of one accord. That would be the New Testament way of describing it. In fact, in the book of Acts, one of the descriptions of the early churches, they met in one accord. They gathered together in one accord. So even though these were people from different backgrounds, people of different economic statuses, they came together in unity. 
Now let's understand what that unity is because the same unity that brought them together also brings us together in seeking God. First notice this. Notice it's the people. These who gathered together were the people, not just an ethnic group, but a people defined by the calling that God had placed upon their lives. The way we would put that in the New Testament is this. They were the redeemed. Their unity came together not because they were of the same background, same social class, none of that. Their unity was founded in the call of God that made them one. You see, our unity as a congregation and our unity with other brothers and sisters in Christ do not come from the fact of any shared experiences save the experience of Jesus Christ. So when we come together, we come from different backgrounds, different experiences, and different, different parents. All those things are different. However, the one unity that should bring us together is this. We look at one another, and those who profess faith in Jesus Christ can say, You are my brother, you are my sister in Jesus Christ. We share that common adoption into the faith, so we are one because of that. The second reason they were unified was this. Notice they came together with a need for God. Look at where the command to read the scripture comes from. Verse 1 again. They told Ezra to bring the law, the book of the law of Moses. So they said to Ezra, get the Torah, come and read it. The question is why? I think it was a people that knew they were dependent upon God. They knew that they needed to know God. They needed to know God's will and instruction for their lives. And the only way they could know that is if the Torah was read. Now, we have the complete revelation of God in the Scripture that culminates in Jesus Christ. But our need for God is no less than their need for God. So part of our unity is coming together as a people that recognize we need the Lord. That hearing from God is necessary for life. The words of God are life. It's funny. I, I don't know why I got on this topic with my family, but we were discussing that back in the 70s, there was a whole slate of airplane, airport movies. where There would always be this one disaster take place on an airplane. There were like three of them. And one of the common denominators was this. Often the pilot in some way would not be able to fly the plane. So they would send out this call, can anybody fly a plane? And of course there's really no pilot, but somebody says, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So they get up there and what happens, there's always a person on the ground that is speaking to them to guide them in how to pilot the plane. Now how do you think that person who knows has no idea how to fly a plane, how intently do you think they listen to the instruction being given to them? You think they're pretty focused? Because they know that listening to what is being told them is life. So it is with Scripture. The Scripture gives life. God gives life. That's why we recognize that the Word of God is God speaking to us. So we come needy saying, Lord, I need you to speak to me. And this is the second thing. As we come unified because of the gospel and unified because of our need for God, we come also ready to respond. Worship is a response to God. 
how do we know God except for the speaking, the preaching of His Word? I want you to notice this is emphasized all throughout the Scripture that the people wanted to understand. And the implication is to understand so they would know how to live. It's emphasized several times. Look at verse 2. Notice how the assembly is described. Both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. Verse 3 emphasizes the same thing. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. Look at verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. That word clearly means interpreting. Now we're going to come back to that in just a moment. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Skip over to verse 12. Verse 12 ends with rejoicing. Why are they rejoicing? Because they had understood the words declared to them. There's a lot in that phrase. The idea is they wanted to know God. Not just facts about God. But they wanted to understand so how to live. That's why I'm excited about this upcoming equip opportunity on applying the scripture. Applying it. That's what we are for. Say, Lord, this is who you are, and how should we live based upon that? Now, there are two parts involved in this. One is the responsibility of the listener. You see, as we gather to worship, there is a responsibility that the congregation has, and that is to listen attentively with the intent to understand. Notice this issue of attentiveness is emphasized in verse 3. All the people were attentive to the book of the law. Their ears were tuned up. They were ready to listen. Now that's difficult in this day and age. According to research, attention among Americans is at an all-time low. In fact, the recent statistics show this, that the average attention span, now let me define the term, an attention span is how long you can focus on one thing before being distracted. The average attention span for the American is now eight seconds before we're distracted to something else. What? Oh, wait. That was my eight seconds. You want to put that in context? The average goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. Now, how they determine that, I have no idea. What that means, however, is this. We have to work to be attentive. That's effort. Now, I think in preparation for worship, there should also be the preparation of heart saying, Lord, I need to be ready to listen. Notice this reading of the scripture didn't just happen by accident. Notice in verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. They came with the intent of hearing the word preached. They gathered and they planned ahead so the word could be preached. So the challenge I would put before you this morning is this. What do you need to do to be attentive? Now for me, the more senses I can engage in the listening activity, the more active it becomes. So if it's it's listening to something, I like to take notes. Other people are distracted by taking notes. Others, it may be where you sit in in the church service. I challenge you to sit up near near the spout where the glory comes out. You know, move to the front. If you're distracted, 
The question is, what do you need to do to be attentive, to have a heart that says, Lord, speak to me? Usually on the back of our bulletin, we, we moved it this month to have our theology of worship on the back. But on the back of the bulletin, every week, there's a place for you to write down. What's your takeaway? Lord, what would you have me do based on what I heard today? Now, that's the responsibility of the congregation, to come attentively. The responsibility of the preacher, I think, is described in verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so the people understood. The responsibility of a preacher is to take the scripture, to read it and explain it, and to guide an application. You have the right to expect that from your pastors. Because that's scriptural. To come and to say, this is what the Lord says. This is the sense of it, the understanding of it. And this is guidance in applying it. The beautiful thing is, is that as we work together in doing this, you come with an attentive heart. The preacher comes prepared, studied, ready to give the sense of the text and ready to explain it. There is a synergy that I think will glorify God by bringing transformation among His people. That's part of the beauty of it. Because when you get a congregation that's ready to be preached to, a congregation that's ready to hear, and a preacher that's ready to preach, there will be power evident at that moment. I love how it was put. Um, I read the story of a man that had started attending Mount Carmel Baptist Church in Philadelphia. Now, Mount Carmel is a historical African-American congregation. And when this man started attending, they were in the process of looking for a new pastor. Big shoes to fill. And after hearing several candidates, the elders had made their recommendation to the church. The church had voted, and they had called a young man to preach. And this new member was concerned about it. So he went to one of the older elders and expressed his concern that this was just a, a young man in the ministry. He didn't know if he could handle the preaching responsibility week in and week out. That older elder said, I understand your concern, but here's what you're forgetting. We're going to take him as a congregation, and we're going to make him good. He said what he saw over the next months played that out. Because what happened is, in that cultural context, there is an engagement between speaker and congregation. And he noticed more and more the congregation would be a little bit more vocal that when this young preacher was on, he got encouragement. That's right, that's right. Preach on, brother, preach on. And on those days when he was a little off, you would hear this out of the congregation. Help him, Jesus. Help him. Tell you what, though, when a congregation is engaged in giving that feedback, it makes a difference. Not just in the preacher, but in the listener. Because what happens when you come unified, when we gather together unified, Lord, we need you, we need to hear from you, and we come together seeking to understand, and the preacher's ready to preach, there are responses that will occur, and that response is worship. Notice, it begins with, with Ezra. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Ezra worshiped, and the people answered, Amen, and Amen. Now worship is erupting from the proclamation of God's Word. Now this worship was twofold. You notice the response that people had over in verses 9 through 12 was this. They were broken. 
Nehemiah and Ezra have to say to the people, This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. For the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why did they weep? That was symbolic of repentance. You see, the word of God will comfort and convict. So they're weeping and they're repenting. So that's the first aspect. What is our response to God? It should be to say, Lord, you are God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Change my heart, O God. But now notice the second part where they redirect them. Don't be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calm the people. Don't. This day's holy. Don't be grieved. And so notice all the people, this is verse 12, went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing. They have a party. There's rejoicing. Why? Look at the reason why at the end of verse 12. Because they understood the words. They came away with their hearts filled and their response was to say, Glory, glory, hallelujah. Because God is gracious. Yes, I was sinning, but God gave me grace and I have repented. And the Lord has restored me because that's who God is. Gracious and merciful, kind and forgiving, holy, but at the same time condescending to us to restore us to fellowship. Is that not the gospel? That we recognize that in the proclamation of the word we are sinners and our hearts are broken. But then we hear the words, weep not for God has sent a sacrifice who died for your sins so that you can be restored, redeemed, and adopted into the family. Amen. You see, that's why worship will have an element within it of repentance but also celebration. Because when you hear the gospel and you recognize the truth of it, your hearts will be moved. I love the story of when Dietrich Bonhoeffer came to the United States in the 1930s to study at Union Theological Seminary. Bonhoeffer was a genius. One of the great theological minds. Don't agree with everything he wrote if you read Bonhoeffer. But there's a lot of what he says that I find quite amazing. His heart was broken at Union. See, at that time, Union Theological Seminary was gripped by liberal theology. And it was dry. He visited a lot of the churches that the professors preached at. And he would leave disheartened. But he made a friend there. A young man by the name of Albert Fisher, an African American who was studying at Union. And Albert said to Bonhoeffer, Dietrich, why don't you come to church with me one time? Bonhoeffer said, well, sure, where, I'll be glad to. Where do you go? He said, I go to church in Harlem at the Abyssinian Baptist Church. Bonhoeffer went. I've always in my mind tried to imagine that first Sunday morning when he was there, an African-American congregation, and here is this Caucasian, German, red-haired man sitting among them. But Bonhoeffer left that church a changed man. He wrote in his journals, I finally heard the gospel proclaimed, and my heart rejoiced. He found the gospel and it transformed him. He began attending Abyssinian regularly, teaching Sunday school there. Why? He said, because I heard the gospel proclaimed. Church, that's the power of the gospel. To hear it and to have our hearts warmed. And that's what happens when the word is brought forth. There is worship that flows out of the word. This morning I ask you this. What's your attitude toward the word? 
When we gather on Sunday mornings, is there an anticipation that you have to say, Lord, speak to me. Be with the pastor today. Would you commit to even pray for me and Pastor Nathan as we try to preach and teach? I hope you do. We need it. We need your prayers. And let's come together every time with an eagerness to hear the Word because the Word of God is life. And I don't know about you, but I need that. I need that. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now. Worship is a response to God. We respond in singing. We respond in giving. We respond in repentance. We respond in giving praise. What response is God calling from you today? Is there an area of which you need to repent to say, Lord, forgive me? Or maybe God's just calling you to live a life that is more grateful. Maybe you recognize that in your life you don't hunger for the word and you think, I don't know what to do about that, Pastor. I would say we start here. Ask God to give you a hunger for his word. Ask him. To humble yourself and to say, Lord, I know your word is life. I believe it. Help my unbelief, Father. Give me a desire for your word. I'm going to ask Nathan to join me here in the front. Both of us are up here. If you want someone to pray with you, we are available to do that. But if you want to come and just kneel at this kneeling bench, there's one on either side of the communion table. Feel free to do that. I'm going to lead us in a prayer at this time. Father, thank you for being gracious to us and revealing yourself. Father, your word lets us know who you are, that you are the great God. and You are our Savior. And Lord, we praise you today. Father, we are prone to wander, prone to leave you. So Father, bind our hearts to you. Grant it, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.